Welcome to Fintech Fridays. Oh yeah! A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things fintech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hey everybody, Maitsip Khan here and you are tuning in to the NCFA's newest show, Fintech Fridays. For today, we have an amazing guest. She's actually a rock star in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, Amy Wan is with us today. She's the CEO of SageWise. Amy, thank you so much for making it. Thanks for having me. I just found out that you just closed out your seed round, so I know you're super busy. I just want to thank you again for taking time out of your super busy day to make time for us. Of course, of course. Anything for you guys. And and honestly, you know, we were grateful for the, for the exposure. <laughs> so I guess for the listeners, could you give us just like a minute of who you are, what you are, and a little bit more of what SageWise is? Sure. So I'll explain a little bit about myself and the company. So um, I am a legal tech entrepreneur. Um, I'm based in Los Angeles, California. You know, started off my career uh, working for the federal government in international regulatory affairs, and then was general counsel at a real estate crowdfunding platform. Um, then a fintech lawyer and and a law partner um, at a law firm. But basically, I'm a real I'm a securities transactional attorney by training, and started seeing um, that there was a huge issue in the blockchain and smart contract industry. You know, in early 2017, there were lots of ICOs that, you know, every other week were getting hacked and losing um, several millions of dollars. And I thought, wow, this is a huge gap in the ecosystem. Um, Someone really needs to build dispute resolution infrastructure to to handle these these gaps. Otherwise, there's no transactional confidence or certainty. And so that's you know, what we do now, we build a safety net for smart contracts. Um, the name of the company is called SageWise. And, you know, we just closed our seed round and, and are looking forward to uh, launching the full platform later this year. I work with startup and I know how stressful it could be closing out a seed round. I guess, could you talk about the feeling or like the immense joy or the immense just sigh of relief that you felt um, finally closing out that seed round? <laughs> well, we are very relieved to finally close it. Um, but at the same time, this just means there's more work, right? Now we have to actually sit down and concentrate on building out product and getting traction. The seed round, I will say though, was it was not easy, right? Um, and for a couple of different reasons. One is because, you know, at the very beginning, we had to make a determination. Do we want to um, go out there and tokenize right away? Or do we want to do it more a more traditional equity round. Um, and we actually decided to do the latter because in, in late 2017, when we were making this decision, I went out and talked to a couple of crypto whales and they were really looking for, you know, instant liquidity and um, massive discounts. And I thought to myself, man, I don't think these people are investors. They're not true believers. They're not going to be great partners. They are speculators who want a quick flip. And we really didn't want that kind of capital infusion into our company. The second thing is just that, you know, blockchain is a technology, but for some reason, this industry, this space comes with a lot of philosophy. You know, there's a lot of people in the crypto community 
who are like, oh, you know, decentralize everything, immutable everything. There's a lot of philosophical dogma behind what blockchain technology should be, which I think clouds not only the industry, but also the investment thesis within the industry. And so we found that when we went out to investors, we needed to quickly determine what their philosophy, if any, was before we pitched them because there were certain people who you know were just not going to like you know what what we were doing and the third thing was just you know personally i was actually pregnant slash had a baby in the middle of raising around and so that was that in, in itself was uh you know a, a great personal challenge wow that's incredible okay so i guess talk a little bit more about that like what was it like transition like from being a lawyer to an entrepreneur because like do, those are in a sense two different wheelhouses but they do have the similarities would you say being a lawyer and now a new mom has helped in your entrepreneurial career oh absolutely i mean so being a lawyer you know especially uh having a, a bit of a background in capital markets and structured finance, I think that helped me to make the determination of what kind of capital we wanted, right? We weren't just trying to go out and raise several millions of dollars and sell away the entire company or or get uh, investment dollars that weren't necessarily strategic. Um, in our seed round, we vetted every entrepreneur that put, invented every investor that put capital in, and we took money always for a very specific reason. And then, you know, in terms of being a mom, man, it's made me become super efficient, right? Yeah. Um, because I, you know, I'm wearing a lot of hats nowadays, but but also it's it's liberating in some sense because, you know, when we first came up with this concept, I thought, my God. We have a huge, a huge thing here. It's very aspirational, but it could be potentially very lucrative, but it's also very hard, very difficult. And I think when I found out I was pregnant, I think kind of the the chains came off a bit. I, I felt a bit liberated because I was like, hmm, now I'm a pregnant female minority founder. There's really not much of a worse position to be in. And so I feel like I've got nothing to lose. Let me just like go for this as opposed to like, hmm, maybe we should like try and tone this down a bit and have a more realistic goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a great way to look at it because I guess not a lot of people would see that because it's like, oh wow, I now I'm gonna be a mom on top of everything else. <laughs> Fantastic! Def- the odds are definitely out out against me. It's wow, I could even imagine. <laughs> Well, it's been it's been very interesting. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, I bet, right? Like sooner or later, you're gonna have your little one just running around, handing out T-shirts and like giving out business cards. So, oh, be, totally, free labor. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You touched a little bit on smart contracts and why they're important. Could you, I guess, get a little bit more in depth of, I guess, letting the audience understand the limitations when it comes to smart contracts, if there's a dark side to smart contracts and where we should, how everyone should have, like you, a realistic view when it comes to this? Absolutely. So, so, you know, there's a lot of hype around smart contracts today, but I think to really effectively wield them and use them, you have to 
always understand the tool that you're using. And so you have to really understand the limitations behind smart contracts as well. And so those limitations are just as if you're working with a traditional attorney, right? The smart contract that your smart contract developer creates for you, it's it's really only as good as the code. Just as when you're using an attorney, the contract that that they draft for you is really only as good as the lawyer who has drafted it, right? And so your smart contract, you know, it may have coding errors. It may have uh, security vulnerabilities. You may need to amend, modify, or terminate the smart contract based on changing situations, right? Because code is static, but human beings and human situations are not. And then finally, you may have genuine disputes over how the smart contract executed. And so those were kind of the gaps that we saw going into this space in late 2017. And so we are really trying to solve for those gaps. Because even if you have a great smart contract developer, that's your first level of defense. Then you may have a great smart contract security auditing company. That would be your second level of defense. But those two are not good enough. We're really your third level of defense. We're we're the safety net, right? And what we're really doing is building dispute resolution infrastructure so that you can freeze execution of the smart contract and have the luxury of time to resolve those coding errors or those amendments or or to resolve those disputes before it uh, gets gets written onto the blockchain forever and may may cause more problems in the future. We're our our mission really is to go after basically the transactional confidence and certainty problem today because basically today cryptocurrency investors apparently seem fine with randomly losing value, right? And that's just not good enough for the mainstream audience to really get this technology to go mainstream. People need to feel confident that to the extent that they're using the technology, they will be able to get out of it what they really intended. Just like, you know, how in the early 90s, you know, people were afraid of buying things online because they weren't sure if they'd actually get the widget. But once eBay, PayPal, and Alibaba, and Amazon put into place reputation systems, dispute resolution mechanisms, then people are like, okay, I know I'm going to get it, so I don't mind buying it online. Yeah, totally agree with you. I think it, it kind of goes back to what we talked about a couple of minutes ago when it comes to crypto whales, right? Of like, they really want this super liquid pump and dump kind of system because they're not really worried about losing or they're oddly okay with losing all this money because they know there's 15 businesses lined up that can do the exact same process and make up the margins or whatever. And for that to go mainstream, it's, it's really, it's really hard to build a economy based on that, right? If everybody's just super willing to lose money, you're not really going to make any money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, transactional confidence certainty is, I think, a key thing in any sort of ecosystem you're trying to build, right? Um, if, if you're trying to build a new economy, but people can't transact or they don't have confidence that the transaction will actually go through or that they'll get what they intended to get, you know, what good is that system? Mm-hmm. Why is it important for fintech entrepreneurs to understand the bridge between legal tech and fintech? Yeah, sure. Well, look, legal infrastructure, power, you know, 
I think maybe unbeknownst to a lot of people, really powers um, so much of how financial transactions and the economy works, right? If you don't have good legal infrastructure, people don't, there's just no confidence there in the entire ecosystem. And so I think that's just really crucial in general. You know, the beautiful thing about smart contracts is in some aspects, they can act as digital escrow. And in other aspects, because they do execute automatically, um, you know, you're, you're kind of alleviating some of the trust issues there. So for example, if we're going to look at a real world example, cross-border trade today, or even cross-border finance, right? Oftentimes you may be dealing with a party that you've never met, you don't know, uh, you're never going to be able to track down. And so if you do this transaction via a smart contract, it can alleviate a lot of trust issues. I talked to, you know, a guy at the State Department a couple months ago and he was telling me that upwards of you know 35% of international you know cross border transactions end up in dispute but are actually never resolved because the cost of resolving those disputes is just not feasible often you are you might be agreeing to jurisdictional law in New York or China, and who knows what that law is, right? That's a that's a huge um, concern, and it eats up a lot of transactional costs and a lot of you know brain power when you're trying to do business internationally. And so, I really think that smart contracts uh, offer a great potential solution here. But at the same time, for everything that goes wrong, because you know, in life, lots of things go wrong, you you still really need a safety net and. Um, you know, the SDK that we are creating, that it's part of the infrastructure that we're creating, that is basically like an arbitration clause in code form. You take it, you plop it into your smart contract, and if anything is going wrong, hey, you still have a backup solution because there's no way that your smart contract developer or our auditing firm is going to be able to code out everything that might possibly happen. Um, you know, human beings are just far too imaginative, far too creative, right? And and things just happen that you you never would have thought about. And so, you know, for, for everything that you can't code into the smart contract, you know, we're there to basically provide a, a catch-all almost insurance type solution. Aside from arbitration, what how else do you see smart contracts being further implicated in both spaces? Sure. As far as the legal profession and, and legal tech, right? I, I do think smart contracts will become increasingly used and, and get more adoption. But you know, the funny thing is less than two percent of the population can read code and smart contracts are basically um, their their agreements to perform written in code, and so I think lawyers are going to have to start getting a lot wiser in how they're going to deal with this, right? Even if they can't read code, they're going to have to find some way to facilitate understanding what is said in the smart contract and how it's going to execute. Otherwise, they're they're going to be doing a big disservice to their clients. On the fintech side, there's already a lot of applications out there today that are trying to use blockchain and smart contract technology. And, you know, if, if I had to give any sort of advice for your listeners, it is, you know, make sure you really understand uh, li- the limitations of the technology because, you know, if you're 
just going out and using this technology willy nilly without really understanding it, it can actually cause more problems for you in the future. That makes total sense. It's like a little kid with a handgun, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I guess for full disclosure, I'm part of the 98% that can't read code. The minute I see code on screen, I walk the other way. I'm like, nah. <laughs> and that's fine because you're in the majority. <laughs> yeah. It's super intimidating. It's like, ah, okay. Why are the lines moving so fast? Why, why is there words and numbers? What's going on? But that's a problem, right? Because if you oh, want this technology to go mainstream, but it is right now, it's largely the domain of, you know, computer science geeks and basically, you know, the less than 2% of the world population, that's a problem. And, and I think one big issue in this space is creating a user-friendly interface. Like no one goes around saying, oh, I use TCP IP technology. No, they just, they use the internet, right? They use, there's been a lot in the past two decades that have been done around creating user-friendly interfaces. When you are using blockchain or smart contract technology, you should not know that you're using blockchain or smart contract technology. It should be that simple. Companies like you and other companies that are making blockchain, making crypto and making all these new markets a little bit more understandable and a lot more, I guess, user-friendly when it comes to understanding code, understanding what it is, how it's implemented, and what they're really trying to build. Completely agree. Um, you know, I've heard stories where, you know, there's an ICO launching that has a smart contract and the way the smart contract is coded, it is not reflective at all of what the company has has said publicly, it's not reflective of the white paper because the developers developing it have not talked to the business team, right? And so that's a, that's a big disconnect there. And, and it's, it's definitely a problem that needs to be solved. That I totally agree with. That makes total sense. Like if, if everything, what you're saying and what you're doing is not matching up, that's not, not, not a good way to run a business. What would be your advice and golden nuggets that, you would, that you'd love to share to our listeners, right? Aside from knowing what smart contracts are, <laughs> understanding how smart contracts can... Yeah, I mean, I think all this technology presents certainly presents a lot of potential, but, you know, the pace at which this stuff is evolving is literally, it's on a day-to-day level, right? And so for those who are interested, I would say follow the conversation closely. Please engage as well, because I think right now the space is dominated by a lot of technologists with who come with a lot of uh, philosophical dogma about how the space should be. But I don't necessarily think everything has to be decentralized. Everything has to be immutable. And, and I think if we get input from more business people, more people from the real world, more people with uh, real experience in things like financial services uh, and fintech, I think that will add very richly to, com- to the conversation to actually make this technology usable by real people. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't, um, it's kind of scary that a lot of people have the burn the world mentality and let's rebuild a new one. That's, oh boy. we'll see what happens yeah no exactly we'll definitely see what happens all right amy thank you so so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule uh it means so much for me for you to sit down with us and talk to us and and just share your vast legal knowledge when it comes to blockchain yeah thanks so much for having me all right take care i can't wait to have you again when you close out series a 
And when your kid starts handing out t-shirts and business cards. That's, <laughs> awesome. I'll let you know amazing. when that happens. <laughs> All right. Awesome. <laughs> You've been listening to FinTech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest FinTech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment fintech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.